Well, good evening. It's good to be back, but it's even better to go home yes, tomorrow, <laughs> to be reunited with my wife. Um, my name is Jan, as said, and I'm Dutch, as Dutch as they come. Um, I'm married, four children, eight grandchildren, and I've been working with Operation Mobilization since 1987. And uh, it's a great organization to work with, and I've been serving in different capacities uh, up to a point where the international leadership said, we don't have a job for you, so just go. Whatever you do, preach, teach, mobilize, mess with people's minds as long as you get the stories out. And uh, also share a little bit about OM. Uh, Adrian and I, we've known each other more than 25 years. When I came to Cape Town, he drove me around in his Volkswagen Jetta. And uh, the rest is history. He joined OM, and he's still here. So if Adrian is still here, that's proof that it's an OK organization. Every organization has its flaws, OM as well. But you need to see right through it, like with the church. It has its flaws, but you need to stay focused on God's purpose and what he's establishing in and through the church. Because otherwise you get discouraged, disillusioned, and there's plenty of, of people that are leaving the church because of that. Uh, so, we are in 130 nations, and we have two ships. Uh, one of the ships is coming to uh, South Africa at the end of January till the end of May, so five months, and, uh, and they're waiting. They're saving the, last, the, the best for last because they will end actually in Cape Town here. So just building up anticipation. And there's various ways in which you can get involved, but you, I, I guess Adrian will tell you about it in the months to come. And then we, we just purchased uh, Dulos Hope, which is a smaller vessel, and that will, that's in Asia. And the neat thing about that ship is that we need ample bodies. So if you have the means and the time, even if it's only one month, don't think about it, don't pray about it, just book a ticket and go to, to serious. You know, it's, it's interesting. In Holland, when you, when you ask people to, you know, would you consider, I, you know, for example, joining uh, Operation Mobilization, do a short-term campaign, go two weeks to Belgium, they said, well, I need to pray about it. And I always say, well, did you pray about your holiday destination? Like laying on your butt on the beach? Well, no. But when it, you, you see what I'm saying? So suddenly when it becomes a Christian ministry, it suddenly becomes so serious that we get all spiritual about it. And it's a no-brainer. If you have the means, you have the opportunity, just do it. Do short-term. Do something. And get to know people and, and level with people. And it's, it's simple. Very simple. I, I don't get those people that get all complicated when it comes to these things. Uh, but when, they, when, when a company wants to hire them, you know, with a 50,000 rand salary a month, no prayer needed. So we differentiate. Anyway, so I'm here to talk about, um, um, that it's, a no, it's a concept in, this, in Scripture, blessing. And uh, it's a word that I very carefully use in my own life. My wife and I, sometimes we lie in bed, and then we use the word. We are so blessed. Why are we blessed? We have a roof over our heads. We have cheese on our bread. We have wine on the side and an amazing relationship with our kids and grandkids. All the other stuff in life is fluff. 
but this is the blessing. And why do we use the blessing? Because we're aware. If I'm saying I'm blessed because I have a roof over my head, we're so aware that millions of people have nothing. And why? Why do we have it? And it, I get all worked up and emotional when I think about it, because it's the unfairness. So the blessing, in that sense, can only be understood in contrast with the unblessing or what others don't have. And I sometimes get a little bit upset with the, light, the, 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 you know, the easiness in which, with which people use the word blessing. Um, and so that's why I sort of uh, developed a little bit of a study on, uh, on blessing. Uh, a while back, a couple of years back, um, I, I preached at a church in Holland and uh, the youth leader came up to share a testimony. <clears throat> They'd had a youth retreat. And as happens in Holland, it was just raining cats and dogs the whole weekend. But they'd scheduled a bonfire. So they had to get the whole bunch on their knees to pray that God would give a dry spell so they would, could have their bonfire at the appointed time. And lo and behold, God came through. And the whole church, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then I had to get up, and it was the same weekend where we had floods in Mozambique. People dying, drowning, mothers crying their souls out, God, God, help us, save us, do something, and nothing happened. And I just start crying, and, I st and, and so I, I don't know what to do, because God is not a weatherman, and we can't direct the weather. Oh, okay, I, I do believe, yes, let's, oh, praise God that we have a dry spell, but it's not like, you know, okay, I think I'm going to give a dry spell there, because these guys are poor guys, they've been on their knees for an hour and a half, I'd better come through. Uh, and they use the word, God blessed us with a dry spell. I'm thankful for the dry spell. And I, I, I take it as a blessing, but not as, you know, God, the weatherman who, whose hands we, we direct through prayer. I remember a prayer from a farmer in Australia, very realistic. He said, Lord, give us the grace to work with whatever comes our way, because we can't direct the weather. It's okay. If you're a, a, a weather prayer warrior, go ahead. Please do it. Uh, but, and sometimes we feel we can control a little shower, but I haven't seen people rebuking tidal waves that flood nations. You don't have enough faith for that, but a little shower? You see what I'm getting to? Okay, so here we go. So the old rabbi said, in olden days there were men who saw the face of God. Why don't they anymore? A young student asked. Answer, because nowadays no one stoops so low, he replied. That was called Gustav Jung in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. So I'm going to read to you from Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So Jesus begins his teaching in Matthew's gospel with what we call the Beatitudes. Who is blessed? Who are the happy ones? Who are the ones to be congratulated? So I'm using some words that will help us to get some feel for the word because it's not an easy concept to translate. So here they are. Oh, I could have pulled this up. The poor in spirit. The mourners. The meek. The, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The merciful. The pure in heart. Of thoughts and feelings. The peacemakers. The persecuted. And the insulted and falsely accused, or the ones that are thrown before, in front of the bus. So that just, those are blessed. Those are to be congratulated, and when you really look at it at face value, I'm looking at, that doesn't make sense. Now in English, in many other translations, the word blessing is used for a variety of words, and that's the problem, because some of the concept, we just have this one word for it. And that's the problem with translations in many languages. So it's a matter of interpretation and sometimes we see different words uh, used for the same word in, in Greek. And I'm going to give you an example. Um, in Genesis 1.22, we read that Adam and Eve, they were blessed. God blessed them. And throughout the Old Testament, we find this barak. That's the word for it. Um, BRK. It's interesting, I, uh, I, I spent some time in the, um, the Middle East and uh, many of the water brands, like uh, bottles of water, bottled water, they have the word baraka in it. Because that's, in a sense, without water there's no life. So that's the most uh, primal idea of blessing. That's where the blessing starts, a cup of water. Because without that cup of water we're lost. So I like that. And, and the, Mos the, the, the Muslims actually understand that. It's baraka. It's a blessing from God. Water. Just pure, plain, flat water. Um, so that was uh, translated into the Greek eulogia and the Latin benedicere. Both of which have a ground sense of to speak well or to praise. Um, but we're used in scripture to translate the Hebrew barak, to bend the knee. So, oh, let's see what's coming up. This is the idea. This is how you get the blessing. You have to bend the knees. And that's the actual, when you study the word, that's the feel that it sort of uh, draws up for us. Blessing, we bend the knees. Here's another example, I think. No, it's coming. Um, so in other words, uh, translated blessed is uh, esher. We find that 45 times uh, and all read like the Beatitudes, for example, especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs. But here in Matthew we find a different Greek word that is also translated blessing, makar, makarios, and therefore sometimes confuses. But this blessing in the New Testament refers overwhelmingly to the religious joy that man experiences and receives from his share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So it's got a little bit more of a spiritual meaning. 
Um, for instance, but it's also translated differently, like in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 40, with regards to life-changing decisions, Paul says uh, that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, yet in my judgment she is happier, so that is translated happier, if she remains as she is. He sh actually, the translation should have done, should have said, she's more blessed, or she's in, a, in a, a better blessed state if she remains as she is. Or in Acts 26, verse 2, in a social, almost secular context, where Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that, is, that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Um, it's not an easy concept to translate. And most English translations, they use blessed or happy, the New American Bible, or my, one of my favorite versions, the cotton patch version. They are God's people. Uh, and there you find uh, translations like, they who have an unsatisfied appetite for the right are God's people, for they will be given plenty to chew on. Uh, cotton patch gospel, you've ever heard about that? Find the documentary. It's about Clarence Jordan, who in 1942 started uh, the uh, Koinonia uh, farm in Georgia, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. It's still going on today. Uh, and it's very simple. He, he read, he was a Greek scholar and a farmer. And he, when he read and interpreted uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he decided not only to believe it, but to live it. And he started a, a community where blacks and whites were equal and got equal pay which of course really upset the other farmers and the churches. They were kicked out of the Baptist church denomination. They were not welcome because they brought black people into the church. When you read, you, you will look at it and say, That's, how on earth could they do that? But back in those times, I think most of us would say, yay, yay, pastor, yay, good, well done. Good for you, we can't have that stuff here. But it's, you just find it on YouTube. It's a one hour documentary. What, uh, what is amazing is, um, uh, what came out of that? So the Cornonia Farm, even today, if you type it, Cornonia Farm, you can still order the pecan nuts. It's a web store. You can visit it there. But out of that, because like in the church, there was a split between the leaders. And out of that, there was one ministry that branched off called Habitat for Humanity, who's built 800,000 houses for the poor, and then you realize some, yeah, anyway, I won't, my time, <laughs> but it's just, you know, when the gospel starts to become a, um, uh, what would we call it, a Catholic, a, a catalyst, the gospel is a catalyst, That's, it all starts with the, with the gospel, uh, even Habitat for Humanity, if you trace the history back to somebody who believed the gospel and started putting the Sermon on the Mount into practice in real life. And it transformed a whole community, but they paid a price. They paid a price. Just watch the documentary. If you can't find it, write, write to me, and I'll give you a link, because I, I bought it, and it's on my G drive. <laughs> I'm happy to share it with you. And I think also as a church, it would be just wonderful, just one Sunday night, let's not have a preach, let's watch the documentary and learn from it. Just a suggestion. I think the pastor will like that because then he doesn't have to prepare a message. What's that? 
Oh, you, you, you made a note. Good, good, good. So, um, a Dutch de de derivative of, uh, of beatification is used. Um, I like the, the Catholic Church is still doing that. They beatify, or what's the word for that? So they, they declare people saints. So they declare them blessed in that sense. The meaning and connotation of words change with time, and we might associate blessing and happiness with feelings and ideas that might be quite different from what the original recipients of Jesus' message felt and understood. And I think it's not overstating when I suggest that most people today will associate blessing and happiness with fortune that comes their way unexpectedly, or with luck. Uh, some have heard me say that, but I was in um, Phoenix, Durban, uh, many years back, and then one of my brothers came to me and said, you know, Brother Jan, God has blessed me with a car. And uh, uh, I didn't understand that against the cultural background. I do now, because if you're in Phoenix, Durban, and you have a car, that means transportation, that means opportunities, that means probably an income. Um, and now I understand that. And then he said, and now I trust God for an engine. <laughs> but the car was there already, and it was a blessing. <laughs> it didn't move an inch. So, current or general associations or understandings of happiness. Here, I'm going to share a few with you because I think you would say, well, this is what the world thinks, but just think, might this have creeped into the church or my personal understanding of being blessed? So primarily, happiness is understood as a subjective, feeling good about oneself and one's life and one's situation. Well, you should see me an hour later. You've been there? You feel you, you've had a good night's sleep, a great breakfast, and something happens. I mean, you feel elated. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then something happens, and you're just 180 degrees on the opposite side. So, let's not fool ourselves. Then, happiness has become both a right and achievable. It's your birthright. Claim it. I mean, if, if you look at the, um, if you take the American Constitution, the, um, the, pursuit of happiness is in the Constitution. It's an entitlement, it's a right. You are entitled to pursue happiness. Now, I've got nothing against pursuing happiness, but when it becomes uh, a thing in itself, uh, to what price that kind of happiness? And the pursuit of happiness has, never ends. It's, it is instead a hedonic treadmill. And once the center is pleasure or feeling good, that center becomes a source of unending demand for more and more and more. And I think for those that are not married yet, if you're planning to get married, one of the, one of the conversations you need to have with your, with your partner is this. What will, be, what will we agree we will live off? If you don't have a conversation about that, there's the danger that you get caught in this, more and more. So we, we use language for that in Holland, like um, when you go to the marketplace and you just got your driver's license, um, you can buy a barrel, you call it, uh, you know, basically a car that's not safe to drive, but we call them starter cars. Um, or we say, uh, we, for housing, yeah, we, we call them starter houses. So, well, we just bought a starter houses. So in that language is, oh, we're not gonna stay here forever. 
but it's just the beginning because we're always we're already anticipating the next bigger and better house. Uh, and so that become that can become easily the treadmill where you get caught in. And we as believers, we should know better. This is the amount we say we live of this, and the rest we either give away or we save or we do something wise with it. It's up to you, because if you don't do that, it's never enough, never. Happiness research shows that it's largely the comparative that satisfied, satisfies the subjective. That is, one becomes happy by comparing herself or himself with others who have less. And as long as one has more, one is happy. But those studies also show that the diminishment in happiness enters once one has more than the necessities of life. They've actually done the math in the Netherlands. If you make more than 33,000 euros a year, your happiness no longer increases, but the burdens will increase. Because you will take on stuff that you, you can't pay the bills anymore, because you think yourself rich. So I love that kind of research. We also learned that happiness is rooted in genetics, partially. Certain temperaments and dis dispositions are more capable of achieving this subjective sense of feeling good than are others. Those who are sociable, active, stable, and conscientious tend to be more happy. And not only is happiness genetic, but it's connected to our lifespan. We reach the nadir of happiness at age 44, and after that it's a good stroll of increasing happiness all the way home. So, just wait till you get 44 and it gets better after that. <laughs> and it's true, I mean, some people are born grumpy and they will spend the rest of their life, you know, have a, a grumpy disposition. And others, they just, they're born with a smile and they just laugh through life. So part of it is, is genetic. It's not all of it, but it's an important ingredient. And it also can be generated falsely by the imagination. Like our capacity to dream and to put things in the context of what we think our reality eventuality eventually will, will be creates greater chances of happiness whether that imagined future ever occurs or not. And in a sense, that's what we also experience in church. When we worship, some people, they, you know, they look, oh, they're almost there. So, but they're, because they're using their imagination, you see? They see God, they see Jesus, and they have, they have a marvelous time. And I, if I'm not one of those. No, I will just sit there and criticize the, the theology behind the words of the songs. Um, and so, but they connect with God by using the imagination. And that increases the whole level of happiness. Nothing wrong with that. But you need to put it in the perspective and say, okay, so it's uh, partially just chemistry in the brain. No problem with that, because God uses that. So in a sense, the general ideas about happiness we could say a state of inner content, contentment and material flourishing. But how biblical is that concept of happiness? Scripture shows us another perspective on blessing and happiness that is quite different from the general idea and definition of it. Story. One day, a very wealthy father took his son on a trip to the country for the sole purpose of showing his son how it was to be poor. They spent a few days and nights on the farm of what would be considered a very poor family. And after they returned from the trip, the father asked his son how he liked the trip. It was great, Dad, the son replied. Did you see how poor people can be, the father asked. Oh, yeah, said the son. So what did you learn from the trip, asked the father. The son answered, I saw that we have one dog and they had four. 
We have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden and they have a creek that has no end. We have, important, we have imported lanterns in our garden and they have the stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard and they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on and they have fields that go beyond our sight. We have servants who serve us, but they serve others. We buy our food, but they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us. They have friends to protect them. The boy's father was speechless, and then his son added, it showed me just how poor we really are. The author is unknown. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Oh, here it is. Yeah, uh, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. For Martin Buber, um, a European theologian, the message of Psalm 1 is that the happy man has a way, a direction, which brings him benefit. All that he does shall prosper, whilst the way of the wicked peters out. Happiness is the reward given for attaining righteousness. In most cases, a set of values chosen by the recipient. That's generally an individual, but sometimes the people as a whole. And some values are ethical, like charity and justice, and others are spiritual, atonement, piety, etc. And like the happy men of Psalm 1, the recipients of divine blessing keep away from evil and contemplate the divine law. The common thread is, in Buber's terms, that they lead directed lives. What is their happiness? Not singing and dancing, not ecstasy and excitement, but contentment and satisfaction. And if we can get that in our lives, regardless of where we are, contentment and satisfaction, we are blessed. We are happy. We are to be congratulated. Now, in the Old Testament, it's predominantly focused on the life in the here and now, a good marriage, one that both benefits um, that both parties benefit from and increases the wealth of both. It was a contract in the Old Testament. A bunch of children, livestock, stuff, and especially shalom, the sum of all good. It's also connected to wisdom and knowledge, a moral life and being respected by others. And in the New Testament, that, and that's where, that's where it, we need, when we look at the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, in the New Testament, there's one component added to that, and that's the eschatological component. The future dimension is explicitly added. Loss, sorrow, grief, death, injustice, they are obstacles in, in the blessing experience, but Jesus says they're temporary. That's what you, blessed are the poor, for they will. It's a, it's, it's, it's a promise. Your poverty might not be alleviated or fixed, but wait, there's a future coming. And so all these um, beatitudes, there's a promise in them. That doesn't mean that it, they become easier to understand, but at least, and, and we know people that get it, that they can, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of, of misfortune that comes their way, there's still joy in the Lord because they can see through it. And of course, our life can be seen as an endless pursuit of that what we think will make us content, satisfies, that fulfills us. Let's call it happiness. 
The problem, however, is that it's not always clear what makes us happy. And uh, Aristotle already said, and Thomas Aquino um, actually underlined that and reiterated, happiness is not to be found in satisfying my desires unless I learn, learn to desire what's best for me. And that's where scripture comes in. God knows what's best for us. And if, we, if that becomes our desires, then the blessing starts to make sense. Happiness in the Bible can be understood as that what we will be and or experience as a result of circumstances, characteristics, choices and or actions that are in accordance with God's redemptive, merciful nature. And with each beatitude, Jesus indicates who or which group of people is happy and why. Now, we won't have time to unpack each of those individually, which would be a very interesting exercise to do and have a conversation around it, because there are some real difficult ones, I believe, but few people would congratulate those who mourn, are persecuted or thrown in front of a bus. They've been stabbed in the back by others. Happiness, however, is not to be found in the mourning, the persecution being dis disadvantaged or discriminated against, but it's to be found in the perspective that God promises better times. Those, those who trust God gain a perspective that reaches beyond their immediate misery, discomfort, sense of injustice, or even suffering and um, illness. My own mother was an example of that. She was diagnosed with cancer. First thing she said to the doctor, the oncologist, when the doctor told her, I'm very sorry, but you've got three months to live, you're dying. My mother looked him in the eye and said, well, why not? So why was she able to say that? I asked her, what, what was it? What made you say that? Was it shock? Because shock makes us do things and say things that are a bit weird. No, 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 she said, it wasn't shock. But I know that if I surrender my pain, my suffering, my illness into God's hand, he will be able to do, turn it into something good. I might not see the result of that, and that doesn't matter, but I truly believe that, that suffering even though she was very clear, suffering, pain, cancer, it doesn't come from God. God is not the author of pain. I don't believe that. And she didn't believe that. But God can use that reality that sort of creeps into our lives for whatever reason and turn it into something good. So she, she, my mom lived a directed life. And so two weeks before she died, she said, Jan, come. And she could only whisper and said, today your cousin came. Uh, she had, you know, a cousin that she had, I hadn't seen for 20 years, but she knew her auntie was dying, so she wanted to say goodbye or whatever, but she came and said, my mother said, I was able to tell my life story and tell her about Jesus, with the result that she knelt beside my bed and accepted the Lord. And my mom said, if it was only for that, the bigger thing, that, that it's been worth it. Not sort of justifying, oh, oh God planned to give you cancer so that my cousin might that would be ridiculous but because she surrendered it and and she started to f fix her eyes on what god possibly could do, do through that she was blessed and uh, she graciously died uh, i i really hope if it happens to me well I've, i have a preference just to drop that that's much easier but to have to go through pain. Uh, but uh, if I have to go through something similar, I, I, my prayer is that God will give me the grace to have that similar attitude. I would love to have it, but I can't sort of order it from the menu. 
but but no, that, but it, we would love to have a foretaste of it, but we won't get it. We'll get the grace when we need it. So, really, when you think about uh, blessing, happiness, it only implicitly relates to material prosperity. But we have to be fair. Scripture, it's there, especially in the Old Testament. Very clear: prosperity is part of the blessing. So I don't have any problem with that. And it's not to be confused with feelings of happiness or fortunate circumstances, because they go away. Feelings go away. Um, f fortune can go can go away. Um, and it has everything to do with doing the right thing, the decision to obey God despite the fact that this decision might lead to misfortune. Doing the right thing. And when you when you and you guys you're determined you're going to watch the. Uh, Clarence Jordan documentary, he did the right thing, and it led to a lot of drama in the life, in his own life, but also in the life of the community. But you can see, it was because they obeyed God. And then you can, you can bear it, uh, for whatever reason. And what I really like is that it connects our lives here and now with a future life. There's one word for it in script, it's called hope. Hope is such a strong power. It's just, it can make the difference between life and death. I don't know if you ever heard about Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it's, it's, I can recommend the book. He was a Jewish psychiatrist who uh, survived the concentration camps, and he was already a psych psychiatrist when he, when he uh, was locked up, and, uh, and he started to observe that there are you know, in, in two broad brushstrokes, two, two sorts of people. There's people that seem to find a way to survive and live, even in concentration camp. And there were people that would, you know, put their head down and they would actually fade away into oblivion. And he found out what the reason was. All these people that have their heads up, they've got something to live for outside. Could be a family member. Um, and that would keep them going. And so he developed what we call the logotherapy, logo meaning therapy. And so that's the whole idea behind that therapy, so helping people to find meaning and purpose, which gives them the motivation to, to carry through another day, uh, especially people that, you know, I've, I've been a drug counselor, and that's what we did. Very small steps, give them something that f they found fulfillment in. Like, very simple taking care of the rabbits we had. They became their rabbits. Don't touch my rabbits. They took pride in looking after the rabbits. Very simple. It's basically logotherapy. You gave them something to live for, something to look forward to, something to take responsibility for, and so, you know, step by step, we helped them to take on more until they were able to take on life in, in its fullness. And uh, so, when I think about, you know, applying that, Happy are those who follow Christ. We are to be con congratulated, even though we know it's not going to be, it's not always going to be a smooth journey. We get in car crashes, we get sick, we die, just like anyone else. But we, we look at Jesus, who was poor, who was humble, who championed righteousness and justice, brought peace and healing wherever he came. And he paid the price for it. People didn't like it, and he was killed. He was 
crucified, loving others in such a way that it cost him his life, a sacrifice given in order that we might be redeemed in order to demonstrate the outworking of that redemption in how we relate to others. And to me, you know, if we truly understand how blessed we are, it uh, enables us, or it actually creates the space that we actually can start focus on the other, serving others, because we're no longer self-obsessed, because we received everything from God. So these are just some thoughts on blessing. I know I probably raised more questions than sort of, and you can poke holes in all my theology. That's, that's fine with me, but, but just be careful when you use the word blessing. But hear it from me, you are blessed out of your socks. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>